From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. We tell stories indeed on Land Stories, and this week I am very honored to have a very special guest in the episode. We are going to discuss some important signs that have popped up. Yes, I said that. Signs, as in that very thing that one stares at all the time, actually, when we're out and about, because we see signs everywhere. And on this episode of Land Stories, we're going to look at some of the historic signs that have been here in the Lansing community over the years and learn a little bit about them. And welcome very much. Uh, appreciate you in the studio today, Dan. Thank you, David. And Dan Seawick is my brother. He's actually my twin brother, which is really cool. And I don't have the opportunity to interview him very much, really for anything. So when I asked him to come into the studio and talk to us for a few minutes today about signs, I was delighted when he agreed to do it. Thank you very much for having me, David. So, Dan, we'll get to your background a little bit here. I thought it'd be interesting to start off by actually asking you a couple of questions about signs and and the nature of them. And not to catch you off guard a little bit, but knowing that Lansing was founded as a city back in the 1840s, and of course it was founded to be the new capital of Michigan, if I had to ask you a question of, what do you think was the first sign that ever went up in Lansing, what would it be? What kind of a sign would it be? Do you think it was a sign for a business or a road sign or something of that nature or welcome to Lansing sign? Uh, It would have likely been a road sign or a sign for a church, Mm -hmm. perhaps even a sign for the cemetery. Sure. You know, that may seem like kind of an odd question to ask. What was the first sign that ever went up in the community? But signs are really important. And usually the signs that people encounter every day are wayfinding signs. I past many wayfinding signs on my way to the studio here, and I imagine you did as well. So Lansing Community College has a really interesting way sign on our campus. It's a sign that's both historic in where it used to be, and it has a historic story to tell and what has been done to that sign recently. The sign I'm referring to is on the corner of Shiawassee Street and Ionia Street, right in downtown Lansing, on the edge of Lansing Community College's campus. It's a wayfinding sign that is triangular in shape, and it is a tall pillar that stands about 10 feet tall or so. And at one time, it actually stood a few blocks away on roughly the corner of Kalamazoo and Townsend Streets in downtown Lansing, where the old YMCA building was. A few years ago, Lansing Community College acquired the sign. Um, Actually, the sign and some of the labor involved in moving that sign to its location were generously donated by Julie Lawton and her real estate company. So, Dan, one of the things we discovered when we moved that sign was that it essentially had a complex construction that consisted of three parts to it. And I want to ask you about one of those parts. One of those parts was the appearance of stained glass. And we were able to have some of that stained glass appearance, we, meaning Lansing Community College, reproduced when that sign was moved over to its current location. Back in the day, when that sign was put in, which is when that building was built, right after World War II, we're talking the 40s, Dan, how common was it that somebody would have actually put 
something like stained glass, or at least uh, the visual effect thereof, on a sign. Was that rare back then, or was that something that you would have seen common? Well, a sign like that is really designed to do a couple things. So what do all signs do? They convey a message. In the case of that one, though, the message was to tell a little bit about the building, mm-hmm. perhaps the architect on it, some of the people involved in it, a little bit about the building itself. So because of that, though, that sign was intended to incorporate into the architecture of the building. Sure. So in that sense, it's kind of like, almost like an artistic rendering of the building itself in miniature form. Yes, exactly. And artistic's actually an important word there. Because at that time, in the 1940s, sign making was still very much an art. Mm-hmm. Okay, And over the course of really the last part of the 20th century and into now, sign making has very much turned into, uh, it's really transitioned from an art to a science and, mm-hmm. and really every aspect of it. Obviously, there are still artistic elements involved in any good sign making, but at the time that sign went in, it was very much an art. And that type of sign would have been looked at as much an art piece as it was a communication device. The stained glass, that's why it was incorporated. And you still see that nowadays in certain type of signs, all the techniques involved in making it are very different. Sure, I imagine so. And, and the techniques are probably different because of both a change in availability materials and a change in skill set. Is that correct? That is correct. I know that you and I were talking uh, just a few days ago about a couple of the, uh, well, a few actually, the really neat old signs that one encounters in driving or walking around Lansing community here. And in doing so, we were discussing that idea that signs can be art, they can be wayfinding, they can convey a message. And one of the signs that you brought up, if I remember right, when you and I were discussing, was for the uh, Pruden building. Which sign did you have in mind when we were driving by that building the other day? The Pruden Wheel, later Motor Wheel Works. Of course, many people who live in the Lansing community are familiar with the building, or at least they've driven down Saginaw Street there Mm -hmm. and seen the smokestack, what's left of the smokestack from the factory. Sure. So next time you drive by that, you happen to look at it, you'll see the word Pruden on it. Mm -hmm. And the way that was manufactured was it was put in right into the uh, structure of the smokestack itself. Mm -hmm. So the decorative brick that covered the smokestack, they changed the color of certain bricks to create the word prudent. And that would have been considered a landmark at the time Mm -hmm. for obviously the company that put the stack up and put the factory up, you know, something they would have been very proud of. Oh, sure. And you would have been able to see it for quite a considerable distance away especially back then, as Lansing did not have any buildings in it at the time that were taller than the Capitol Dome. And there's a specific reason for that, actually. For a good number of years, the city of Lansing had an ordinance that forbid any construction company from building a structure uh, that was taller than the Capitol Dome, the Capitol Dome intending to be the overwhelming point of focus when one was to get a vista in which the uh, skyline of Lansing would appear in the distance. But, of course, with the uh, growth of Lansing, structures ended up eventually exceeding that height. Now, Dan, you and I talked about another sign as well when we were doing our research for this episode, and you and I actually were just talking about that here a few moments ago. And it's another sign that actually stems from 
way back in the day, we're talking even before World War II. What sign is that that we were contemplating? That was the old Michigan Theater building on what we now call Washington Square. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I want to touch on a little more about the prudent wheel sign. It's interesting to look at old aerial photos of a city, Mm -hmm. one the size of Lansing or bigger. It's interesting to see what stands out because obviously they didn't have Google Maps back then. But the idea was kind of the same. And getting back a little bit to what you talked about with Lansing, building ordinance and whatnot, Mm -hmm. sometime if you're in the... Capital Area District Library, the downtown branch, Mm -hmm. they have a very nice overhead shot of Lansing, and it kind of explains the general, what they called at the time, the bowl concept, Sure, where everything was to be a bowl, essentially, Hmm. into the capital. Oh, really? Yes, and the capital was kind of the center of it. Mm. So that's why they wanted the buildings all to be shorter than I see. I see. That's fascinating. But if you look at an overhead shot Mm -hmm. of a city at that time, you'll see, like, typically smokestacks is something you'll see, or water towers, because obviously the industrial enterprises needed them Mm -hmm. to produce the products, but they also use that as valuable advertising space. Oh, of course. And and we'll get back to the Michigan Theater sign here in a bit, but immediately two of the things pop into my mind that I don't want to forget about, so we'll follow up with them right now. One of them is this idea that signs become a part of city planning and urban planning. Yes. Right? And, of course, well, I say of course, it's obvious to you and I, Dan, but not necessarily perhaps to some of the folks who are listening. Communities have sign ordinances, don't they? Very much so. And the word planning there is very important mm-hmm. because it helps plan the aesthetics of a community. Obviously, there are trade-related safety concerns with signs. Mm -hmm. So that sort of thing is dictated by the ordinance to some extent, but also the planning. So cities have consistent aesthetics and whatnot Mm -hmm. with their signs. Sure. And, And this is an issue that comes up, I think, in any community that is going through changes. And changes could be population growth, could be population decline, it could be a major change in the business structure. A variety of things encompass community change. And oftentimes, the sign ordinance or say ordinances related to how many uh, entrances or exits can be on a road, any kind of planning, any kind of access point planning that takes place, the sign has to be a part of that, doesn't it? Absolutely. And there's been uh, you know, a lot of opportunities lately in this area, at least in my mind, to contemplate this sort of thing. And actually, Dan, as you and I were talking a few weeks ago, planning this episode out, one of the things that generated the idea in my mind was... Driving down 496 right after the construction was completed here, the most recent round of it, and seeing all those brand new green interstate highway signs hanging up and watching some of those get hung with the construction work is really what got me thinking about what an important role signs play historically. Now, when it comes to a sign ordinance, would a community like Lansing have had a sign ordinance going all the way back to its founding or at least something that would be equivalent of Well, what they likely would have had, at least ordinances that dictated the installation procedures as far as to make sure when a thing's hung, it's not going to fall off the building and hit someone. Mm -hmm. There would have been certain construction codes dictating that, and certainly any lit sign because of the uh, electrical requirements. Okay, yeah. But as far as specific ordinances related to aesthetics and heights, 
I cannot speak for that. Okay. I, I do not know the answer to that question. Sure. Didn't mean to put you on the spot at all. Actually, you did answer it in a really good way, getting me thinking about another thing that we haven't touched on yet. But that, of course, is some of the science that goes into making signs, including signs that are electric. And maybe this is a good opportunity to get into that sign that we've mentioned here a few times in the last couple minutes or so, and that would be that Michigan Theater sign. Certainly. So to kind of paint a picture here, the Michigan Theater, as many of you may know, was located at uh, 217 South Washington Street here in Lansing Mm -hmm. in the uh, area we now call Washington Square. The building has had a few lives, if you will, and it's currently been redeveloped. It's actually a very nice space inside. Mm -hmm. You have a chance to go in there. Obviously, it's a lot different than what it was when it was a movie theater. Right. But it's a very nice space in the city. Mm -hmm. But at one point, it had a what we would call a theater, a movie theater marquee. Mm -hmm. And it had, if I can describe it, the sign would have had uh, a very tall, lit word that's Michigan Mm -hmm. going up and down the side of it. Mm -hmm. And then it would have had the area at the bottom where the playbill would have been put on with uh, some type of changeable lettering. Mm -hmm. The sign would have been lit with neon, combination of that and light bulbs, incandescent light bulbs. And it would have made an absolute incredible impression at the time. Oh, absolutely. And for anyone who is able to take a look at the Michigan Theater that still exists in Ann Arbor, that'll paint a very good picture Mm -hmm. of what the sign would have looked like. That sign still stands. I do not know which parts of that are original and which parts have been restored, but it's, it's a beautiful sign nonetheless, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been taken well care of over the years. Sure, and as this is you know an audio recording, there'll be plenty of people out there right now that are Googling the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, which is good. That's kind of the point, and as you are doing that, or at least... If you're driving down the road or whatever, and it isn't exactly safe to be Googling right now, you can put in your mind what an old theater sign looked like. Now, what do they make these out of? What was the material this was made out of back then? Uh, They would have been composed of a few different components. The sign itself was primarily constructed of uh, porcelainized steel. Porcelainized steel? Wow. So they put a um, porcelainized enamel coating on steel. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously in Michigan, it needs to stand up to the elements. Oh, sure. So that made it very, very durable. It would have made the steel resistant to corrosion. Mm -hmm. The best way I can describe it is anybody that has camped and used the old porcelainized enamel camp cooking cups and whatnot. It was similar to that. Mm Mm-hmm. And movie theater signs are, are among some of the most iconic around the country, I think, that I am not alone, and I suspect you would agree with me as well, Dan, that uh, some of the signs that seem to stick out whenever somebody drives into a small town they've not been to before, or even a bigger city they've not been to before, are these old movie theater signs where they still actually exist. For sure. They were very well made at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the movie theaters were what we would call nowadays a chain, or perhaps a franchise model. So... They had a little bit of money to spend on their sign. Mm-hmm. And it was a very prominent, important part of the business, obviously. It was a essential part of their advertising. You mm-hmm. know, they didn't have Google. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so when people were driving down or walking down the street, they needed to grab attention. Mm-hmm. So they would spend a lot of money on the signs, and they would get a very 
good quality, durable sign. It was a very important part of the business. And as we talked about earlier, in addition to it being functional, they want that to be part of the architecture of the building. Oh, sure. So sure. it had to, had to stick out enough to get noticed, but it also had to fit in somewhat to the building's architecture. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. And you know, the architectural styles uh, change over time right along with the signs, don't they? They do. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, and this is a little bit of, uh, um, I guess, a, a lot bit, actually, of the subjective part of a consideration when we're, um, you know, looking at signs. But at least in my mind, I think when a sign matches the architecture of the building, it provides a really interesting addition to the effect. But then at the same time, we've all encountered signs sometimes before that they just either they look out of place or you can't exactly put your mind around it as to why it doesn't fit, which gets me back to something that you had mentioned right towards the beginning of our conversation today that I want to go back to a little bit. And we can use that Michigan theater sign as an example, but we can use other signs around Lansing or any other community that anybody out there listening can think of. Technique. You had mentioned signs were an art, yes. and now they're a science. Very so tell me so. a little bit more about that. And again, we can use some of these signs you've already mentioned as an example here around Lansing or others you can think of. Sure. Well, if you take the Michigan Theater sign as an example, there is a few trades that went into making that. One of the most important ones would have been neon, mm-hmm. the trade of neon. The term neon or neon sign is kind of used almost generically now. When you say neon sign, most people think of the glowing glass that has the name of the business or the message they're trying to portray with it. Sure. But uh, a lot of people don't think about necessarily how that neon was made, and it involved a few different trades. Glass blowing, Mm -hmm. um, you had to heat the glass up and bend it Mm -hmm. to create the shape for the letters. Then you had to charge it with the gas. Originally, it was neon gas. Then later on, some other gases were used. And by charging it, we're, we're getting a little bit of chemistry here. We're <laughs> right. talking about essentially lighting up the gas, so to speak. That is correct. So we have a lot of electricity involved, mm-hmm. rare gases. Mm-hmm. And that certainly required an artist to put that together. And the engineer to figure out and how to get engineer. the gas in there, right? Exactly. And all this is going on way back in the 1920s. Yes. Yep. That's really something mm-hmm. to think about. A couple of things pop in my mind right now that are related to this, uh, this idea, which I really am fascinated by, of, of a combination of art and science going into something like a sign. And, of course, we encounter so many signs and daily. And, and to get back to that YMCA sign that we started talking about at the beginning of the show, I was in my office here at Lance Community College a few years ago. And uh, I can't remember if I got a phone call or if I made the phone call, but one way or the other, I ended up talking to one of the librarians at the Capital District Library, the main branch library, downtown Lansing. And, and as it turns out, the original sign, the plaque, the building plaque that had gone into the Carnegie Library building on Lansing Community College's campus, which is now half of our our university center building. I say R because I am on the campus of Lansing Community College right now. And that original build plaque was really neat to have because obviously it gave the information of when the building was built, but then it also was nice to hold this artifact from 
at that time. It had been over 100 years ago, and it's been even more than 100 years ago now uh, since that building was built and that plaque was cast. To hold that in hand and think to yourself, there was an artisan that made this, there was a technique that went into this, and that plaque was very much a sign because its purpose was to inform people about when the building was built. Absolutely. And those type of things... The bronze plaque, for instance, mm-hmm. that very much involved art and science as far as creating the mold mm-hmm. to make the sign and then uh, the mechanical skill required to pour the metal and then finish it off. And a little bit of that also, the same type of techniques would have been used on that YMCA sign mm-hmm. we spoke of earlier. Sure. Figure with the stained glass that required a stained glass artisan mm-hmm. to work all those pieces solder them together with the lead and whatnot, the mm-hmm. different skills involved in doing that. Then, of course, you would have had the mason, the masonry skills required to make the column, mm-hmm. and then the metalworking skills required to make the plaque. Sure. And we at uh, Lansing Community College had to replicate some of that original craftsmanship that was done when we had that sign moved. Our, uh, our talented beyond any and all means of describing it, artist in-house, Bruce Mackley, uh, was able to recreate some of the elements with the uh, stained glass recreation that we did on that. Yours truly, actually, don't ask me how I got involved in it, but I ended up doing the artwork for the plaques, and then we had a company that did the castings on those, and then we were able to make those plaques and deliver them to us. But moving that sign itself was quite the project, and of course, I'm trying to make sure I don't forget anybody in mentioning this, um, sign who is involved in it because it tells us about how these things were put up to the beginning. We had some of our own folks involved in in the final uh, installation of that sign, and and I'll put a shout out to uh, Ray Johnson and Brad Latuzic in particular of putting the plaques on that sign after we got them from the mm-hmm. from the company that made them. That's funny because when you get to that point of the process. The job site probably actually didn't look all that different than it did in the 1940s when that plaque went in. Mm-hmm. Sure. Still a hand labor involved in putting the plaque mm-hmm. in and whatnot. So, yeah. yeah. Really something else to see that, uh, you know, see that legacy last this long. Well, this episode it has flown by as it usually does. And, Dan, I want to thank you very, very much for coming in and talking to us. I will do the same I always do. I will extend an invite for a future episode because there is absolutely no shortage of signs to talk about. When it comes to Lansing, they're such an important part of our community's history. I can't thank you enough for coming in here and helping us learn more. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, David. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.